in connection with Stephen, travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Miriam. Let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, it's so lovely to sing your praises this morning with brothers and sisters in Christ. We're so thankful for who you are and uh, what you've done. We're so thankful for the privileges we have in this country at this time to, um, in freedom and without concern, come together to uh, worship you, to hear you speak to us. And now as we spend some time thinking on your word, we ask for your spirit to make that word not just heard in our ears, but felt in our hearts and change our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder whether you uh, heard that reading and thought today that the uh, passage is a bit um, ho-hum. Uh, as we've been back in Acts, we've seen some incredible things. We've seen Saul, this enemy of Christians, become a Christian. We've seen uh, Cornelius, the first Gentile, become a Christian. And this section can seem a little bit like filler. It could seem a little bit like just a summary of what's gone on without some of the action or the pathos of many of the passages. And I must confess, I felt like that a bit myself at the beginning of the week as I looked at it and thought, really, is this what we're doing? Could I not have joined it up with another more exciting section or something like that? But one of the reasons uh, I think I'm still a Christian after many years is the way that the Bible continues to uh, instruct and challenge and teach, even in the places where you don't see it immediately. You're you're aware at times as you study the scriptures, this can't just be human wisdom. There's too much there. There's incredible things. And uh, this week, although at first I thought it looked like filler, I've come to think, well, not only is there good stuff in here, it's very timely for us. Because what's going on in this passage is a new church starting up. You could call it perhaps the first church plant post-Jesus. Uh, outside of Jerusalem, at a time when, as St. Stephen's we just mentioned, we're about to start a new stage of our church journey, we're seeing a church begin in Antioch. 
And Antioch, if you don't know the, um, the geography of the time, Antioch, there's a number of Antiochs, but this particular Antioch is the major Antioch. So in the, uh, in, in the area in that time, you've got Rome, which is the biggest city, you've got Alexandria, then you've got Antioch, which is really number three. It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It's a place, as you can imagine, because this is always the case with big cities, it's a place that is well, was well known for pagan worship and for sexual immorality. But here we're going to see Jesus start to make a difference in this place. And at, at a time when we're thinking about our church life and what things are about, very timely. But let me just set the scene. Remember, if you were here last week, the thing that we saw more than anything else was that Jesus is for everyone. Because we saw Cornelius, this Gentile, non-Jew, become a Christian. And Cornelius showed us two things. One, we saw that no one is too good to need Jesus. Because Cornelius was an upstanding citizen. He was a devout person who feared the Lord and prayed. But that wasn't enough. He needed Jesus. So no one's too good that they don't need Jesus. But we also saw that no one is so bad that Jesus isn't for them. Because Cornelius, on the other hand, was an unclean Gentile, and yet Jesus was for him. There's no one too far from the Lord. He's for everyone. Jesus can be everyone's saviour and Lord. And today we're going to see that carry on as this new church starts, because for the first time it's going to be a church with Gentiles as well. Now if you look behind me at the verses, you can see that we pick things up in chapter 11 verse 19. We're reminded of chapter 8 of the book of Acts. Because remember, the church began in Jerusalem and then it started to spread out. But what was the factor that made it spread out? It was the death of Stephen. Do you remember? Stephen had been martyred, he'd been killed, the church was being persecuted, and so many of the disciples had scattered out. And that's what starts us off today. We read, Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Now just before we get into who's been told the message, notice the building of the church here. The first church plant, this wonderful thing that's going to be established in Antioch, comes out of something awful. Something awful. Stephen had died. That was evil, that he was put to death in the way that he was. The death of Stephen, if you'd asked his family, was a tragedy. It was painful and, like all death, terrible. And yet from such an awful thing, God brings good. This world is a terrible place if you think there is no God and you're only left with the evil or the you, know, you think it's all just up for grabs. We live in a world and we should be so thankful that even out of the evil, God can bring good, even if we don't know how. Well, the disciples of Jesus, we're told, travel far, but verse 19, they're only speaking to Jews. But the change now comes in verse 20, and we've been prepared for it because we saw Cornelius uh, um, converted last week. We find men from Cyprus and Cyrene who also tell Greeks the good news of Jesus in Antioch. So this is incredible. Jesus is going to start making a difference in the lives of Gentiles in this place, Antioch, so far away from Jerusalem. And verse 21 tells, tells us that those disciples who told Greeks about Jesus, the Lord's hand was upon them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So what we're going to do as we go down, it feels a little bit bitty this morning, but we're going to read through the verses, and as we do, I'm just going to draw out three things that I think we see about this new church, this church plant. And I'll leave it for all of us to think about how those three things could apply to us in our situation uh, today. 
And the first thing you see this morning in this church plant is it's got a simple strategy. A simple strategy. Today you could be forgiven if you were starting a church or doing a church plant or something. You could be forgiven for thinking that the most important thing a church needs is brilliant leadership. So you've got to train the leaders specifically. The leaders have to be assessed by certain other groups. They need to be uh, focused on and um, or, or you need really well-known leaders so that people can have confidence and go and see them. Or you might think that what you really need is money. You, you, you need to have a cash flow so that you can purchase land or buildings or, or get things up and running or pay staff or those sorts of things. Or that you need to be part of a, a denominational structure. Uh, or that you need a five-year plan, a clear structure five-year strategic plan. But what do we see here? This new church, this church plant, is begun by who? Nameless Christians. I'm glad no one shouted out a name then because I would have said wrong. (laughs) Nameless Christians. It's not done through the apostles. It's not done by Peter or by Paul. It's not even the result of Philip who went to Samaria or Barnabas who's going to come in a few few verses' time who will help it grow. It's planted by unnamed disciples who'd scattered after the killing of Stephen. But we can see more than it was just planted by no names. It was done with no strategy. Well, there is a strategy, but it's, it's just not the high-powered one you might think. What's their strategy? Verse 20. Speaking. That's their strategy. Perhaps not as finely tuned as you might have hoped. Perhaps not as complicated as we might have expected. Their strategy, verse 20, was telling people the good news of Jesus. That was what they did. They were gossiping the gospel. That's what they were involved in. And I point this out because I worry that we're in the Christian circles today we're going down the line of business principles taking over Christianity. Or church growth philosophies being seen as essential in people's mind instead of just helpful. This church that we read of seems to have had no long-term strategy. They weren't experts in branding. They didn't seem to have a master plan. They didn't even have other examples to follow. We don't know of any cash reserves or denominational structure. Or They told people about Jesus. That's what they did. They told people about the one who is Saviour and Lord. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those kind of things. Plans and strategies and all those things can be good. But you've got to keep the first things first, don't you, when you're your church. You've got to keep the essential things essential. Nothing's more important than telling people about Jesus. I hope we know that and live that. I hope as we begin, in one sense, a new phase of our church life, this is the, the key thing first and foremost. They had a simple strategy. A simple strategy. Let's keep going through the passage and um, we see that with the church that's now been brought to life and is growing, we're told the Lord's adding to their number, news of this reaches back home to the, the home base of Christianity, which back then was Jerusalem. And so the Christians in Jerusalem send one of their best, Barnabas, out to Antioch to see what's going on. And have a look what it says, verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So here we're just going to pause again and see a second thing. We've seen a simple strategy. Secondly, we see a brilliant Barnabas. 
a brilliant Barnabas. I love Barnabas. I don't know what you think of him, but uh, I, I love him. I love what it says about him here, and I love what it says about his ministry here. Remember, this is not the first time we've met Barnabas in the book of Acts. When did we meet him first? Anyone remember? With Saul, we do, but we actually meet him before. We meet him back in chapter 4 where we find out his original name. What was his original name? I'll give you $1,000. No, no, no. Uh, it just sounded like no. Joseph. We're told that back in chapter 4, Joseph is his original name. We're also told which tribe he comes from. He comes from the tribe of Levi. He's a Levite. We also find out um, that he, he gifted a field that he owned and brought the money to the apostles. He laid it at the apostles' feet, if you remember. And then we're told his name, the name that he becomes known as, Barnabas, which means... Son of encouragement. If you're going to be given a name, that's a good name to be given, isn't it? Because you're an encourager. You're a help to other people. So this is Barnabas. But we did also, you're right, hear about him when Saul became a Christian. Because when Saul finally went to Jerusalem, the apostles didn't believe. This is the guy who was involved in persecuting Christians. But it was Barnabas who stood up for, for Saul with the apostles. So I want, I want us, as we think about a brilliant Barnabas, I want to look at some of the key phrases used about him and his ministry, because that will help us think about what we should be like and what our ministry should be like. In verse 23, it says, Barnabas saw the evidence of the grace of God. I love that descriptor, because lots of people don't see the grace of God. They see clever people or successful structures, or but they don't see what's behind it, which is the grace of God. Very important to see evidence of the grace of God. I pray that people will see it when they come to St. Stephen's. They won't just see uh, wonderful people or world-class music or superb entertainment. They'll see evidence of the grace of God. Because when the grace of God has been at work, you don't find arrogant people who look down on others from above you find humble people eager to share the love and forgiveness that they've received. That's the difference the grace of God makes. When the grace of God is evident, you find people who don't just uh, aren't just satisfied with angrily shouting out truth at other people. You find people that deeply desire those other people to know the truth and live by it. When the evidence, uh, evidence of the grace of God is, it's less about people shining and more about people serving. The grace of God is something we don't necessarily see overtly, but we must know is behind us and undergirding us and at work. And, and you want to see that it's that that does anything valuable. Uh, but there's other aspects of Barnabas which are great. Look at what Barnabas encourages them in. Verse 23, to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. I think if you sum up Barnabas's ministry to the people there at that particular time, this is what he did. He, he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. It's a great thing. Again, there's a simplicity there. Do you see that? It's not overcomplicated. It's very simple, but very profound. Today, when we train ministers uh, for pastoral ministry, or we, we equip people with pastoral care skills, we, we give clinics on reflective listening and the difference between sympathy and empathy. And we give lessons on di different types of psyche and how people operate and the dangers of codependency. And again, some of that stuff is really helpful. But you see, Barnabas doesn't overthink things. He doesn't over-strategize or over-complicate. He encourages people to remain true to the Lord with all their heart. That's what he's doing. 
And that's a great thing to have in mind. If you're, if you're, only, if you're going to do pastoral care with people, and all Christians do pastoral care as we meet with one another and hear from one another and pray with one another, that's a great thing to keep in mind. I just want them to remain true in the Lord, in heart. And he doesn't do it aggressively or manipulatively. We're told he does it encouragingly. It's great pastoral advice to keep in mind. Because sometimes when you're really struggling with God, if you're in the middle of a, a situation where you've, you, you're, you really are finding things difficult, what we go to is wrestling with theological questions or painful self-examination or when perhaps all we should do is just try and remain true to the Lord. Much simpler, much more basic, but just keep trusting, keep obeying. Just taking one step after the other because sometimes it's too hard to think and sometimes it's, it's too scary or too confusing to look far ahead. Just remain true to the Lord. Barnabas does a wonderful thing here. Wisdom. Uh, that may be something you need to hear today. Don't overcomplicate things too much and just remain true to the Lord. Seems much more manageable, much more. Or you may know someone today who needs to hear just this advice because they're finding things so difficult. Just remain true to the Lord. Uh, but there's more about Barnabas that it says. In verse 24, it continues to describe him in wonderful ways. And you might think that the descriptor of full of the Holy Spirit and faith is the great one. And it is great. I don't want to minimize it. But it's the other bit I want to point out. It says that Barnabas was a good man. A good man. Now, that doesn't sound like much at first, I don't think. Nice. He's a good man. But it's not fantastic. He's not a great man. He's a good man. Uh, <clears throat> But this is a very significant description in the, script, in the scriptures. Uh, <clears throat> the importance of the word good. I think we think of it differently. Uh, back in 2001, there was a very famous book on business management that came out. And the title was, From Good to Great. From Good to Great. It sold over 4 million copies. It was seen as the kind of a, a change in the way that business management was done. And the book was looking at how companies could go from being good to great. And it looked at some of the elements involved and that kind of thing. But that's the thinking, that good is okay, but great is fantastic. Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. In the Bible, good is top of the line. In the Bible, good is great. Uh, I think I'm right in saying, I didn't do all the investigation on this, so you can come and challenge me afterwards. I think I'm right in saying there's only two people in the New Testament described as good. Both are called Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea and Joseph, known as Barnabas, here. There's only two. Because when the word good is used in the Bible, it's usually used in reference to what? God. Think of creation. God looks at whatever he's created and it is good. Why is it good? Because God did it and it's as he intended it to be. The only thing not good in creation is the man being alone because that's not how God intended it to be. Good means God's made it and it's, and it's as he intends it to be. When they go to the New Testament, when the rich young ruler goes up to Jesus, he calls him good teacher. And what does Jesus say to him? Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So good is great when it comes to Christianity. Good is top of the line. Barnabas, we're told, is a good man. I pray that that would be something that you and I would aspire to, to be known as a good man, to be known as a good woman. Be good. We don't often talk about this that much. It's kind of basic. It's 2101. But I'll ask you this one. Are you good?
as God intends. Don't do bad stuff. Do do good stuff. It's not rocket science. Again, there's a lot of simplicity in these verses this morning, isn't it? Barnabas was a good man. Will we be? Today would be a good day to ask yourself, am I a good person? And more importantly, to ask the Lord to help you if you're not. And the good thing is, the scriptures tell us, the Lord will help us if we ask. If we seek him, he will help us. So today might be a good day to ask the Lord to help you to stop do doing certain things. To, you might ask the Lord to help you stop your tongue because you use your tongue as a weapon and other people left in the wake of it. Or to ask the Lord to help you stop the way you use your eyes because your eyes wander to things that they shouldn't be wandering to. Or to get the Lord to, to stop the, your thoughts, the way you, you think in different situations. Or to stop your temper. Or to stop your selfishness. Or to stop your greed. Today would be a good day to stop that. And to be as God intends you to be. Or it may be that you want the Lord actually to help you start certain things. It's not so much just about stopping, but to start doing things. You want to ask the Lord that you would be a better friend to the person who needs you. Or a better mum or dad. Or a better husband or wife or son or daughter. Or perhaps you need to start getting into the word more or spending more time in prayer with the Lord. Maybe you need to start meeting up with younger Christians to encourage them and uh, set them an example. Be a good man or a good woman. Barnabas was a blessing to this church because of what the Lord had done in him and because of how he served them. Don't strive to be great. The whole world wants to be great. For Christians, we want to be good. We want to be good. So you've got the grace of God um, uh, that Barnabas can see and recognise. You've got the encouragement to remain true to the Lord. You've got being a good man. This is brilliant Barnabas. So that's the second thing. So we've got a simple strategy we see, a brilliant Barnabas. We'll keep going through the verses. Uh, Barnabas obviously realises he needs some help because this church is growing to disciple and to strengthen the church. And so in verse 25, he looks up an old friend and he gets Saul to, to, and brings him in. I love that too because there's humility there. I can't do it on my own. Uh, sometimes it would be quite nice to be needed by everyone and things, but no, we want the church to grow. We'll bring in more help. He does that. And they spend a year with the church doing what? Teaching. Because that's the key aspect of any church. There's lots of important elements to a church. We want good music and we love high quality programs and safe creches and things like that. But good teaching will always be the thing that over time strengthens a church fellowship and keeps it strong. That's what they were doing. And then we're told in verse 27 of some prophets coming down to them from Jerusalem. And one of them, with the great name Agabus, Agabus predicts a severe famine coming. And the passage ends where we see that these believers, this church now, don't just care about themselves, but they care about other believers. Because they practically look to support and give to the brothers and sisters back in Judea, back in Jerusalem especially. But it's the piece of information that Luke, the author, gives us in verse 26 I want to finish with as the third point today. We've had a simple strategy. We've had a brilliant Barnabas. The third one is a nice name. A nice name. I should have done better than nice, but I was trying to keep alliteration going, and I, I think I failed. But I want you to see what I mean. A nice name. The end of verse 26 reveals it's at Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Now, that's very telling. When you hear that they were first called Christians in Antioch, we know straight away just from that fact, we know a little bit more. Firstly, it shows it was Gentiles that named them. Think about that. There's no way Jews would have named followers of Jesus Christians. 
Because the word Christian is a bit of a Jewish Latin mix, but it means followers of Christ. But remember, Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's not like he was Mr. Christ. Christ was the title, the title of the Hebrew word Messiah, appointed king. The Jews absolutely rejected that Jesus was the Christ. So you would never call followers of Jesus Christians. That would have been blasphemous. So it's Gentiles that are calling the Christians Christians, the disciples of Jesus Christians. So it's Gentiles that named them. Other things that we, we can know just from that phrase that they're called Christians, they're, they're, they're getting stronger. They're getting bigger. You don't give a name to a subgroup unless it's got to a certain size and strength and influence and that kind of thing. This church must have been growing. That must have been felt and seen and heard within the wider Antioch community. And so now there's a name for them. But it's the last part that um, I think is the main one. It's a great name that they're given because it means that what they were known by what they were defined by, by other Gentiles and the people around them was they were followers of Jesus, that Jesus was what defined them. They were first and foremost known as followers of Jesus. What a great thing for others to know Christians as. It's made me think this week, how would people characterise us here today? How would our, our wider community think of us and who we are and what we're about? Would they know? Would they just see us as Sunday gatherers? Is that who we are? Would they see us as Bible bashers? We're pretty good in arguments because we can quote particular scriptures, uh, so we're Bible bashers. Would they see us as moral people, people that do good things within the community? Would they see us, this is a, a challenge for us, isn't it? Would they see us as homosexual haters? Because one of the defining things that's happening at the moment is a stance we've taken on a certain thing. Or would they see us as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, as people who love Jesus, that first and foremost, that's what defines us. And everything else flows out of a love for him as our saviour and our Lord. I pray that um, that would challenge us. It's challenged me this week, thinking about that. I pray that it would challenge all of us collectively as a church. It's a nice name. It's more than a nice name. It's, it needs to be stronger than that. But it's a good name. It meant the church was doing a great job because the people around them knew them, knew what defined them, and knew that Jesus was at the heart of who they were. These people followed the Christ. Well, friends, that was the church, the new church plant in Antioch. What about us? Uh, tomorrow, as I've said, we enter a new phase legally. I think tomorrow I'm unemployed. I think I, I haven't signed a contract yet. I'm supposed to have signed a contract. But um, we're, we're in a new phase. We're in a new stage. And we've been very blessed. I said before, we've had a wonderful transition team who's done an incredible amount of work. Work on contracts and constitutions. Legal work and banking work and employment stuff. We've also got another group, not the transition group, but another group who are working on the whole new Anglican structure at the moment. So things that has been done in microcosm there is being done at the, the bigger level for the, the kind of new diocese. And there's so much to it. And we're so blessed and fortunate to have very capable people working on all this, some of them with specialised skills and all of them being willing to use their time and talents in a different way to do this tricky, complicated stuff. And all that stuff is important. But do you see what the church at Antioch reminds us? There's undergirding stuff which is more important. Because the gospel's not complicated. 
the good news of Jesus is not hard to understand or to live out. The three things we see in this church, a simple strategy. That's what it was. Unnamed disciples planting a church by speaking, by gossiping the good news of Jesus. That's what they did. We saw a brilliant Barnabas. We need Barnabases in, in, in church life. Barnabas was not a great man, but he was a good man. And he was a good man who encouraged others to remain true to the Lord. And when he looked around, he didn't see the outward. He saw the grace of God that was at work behind. That's what we need in a church. And we saw a good name, a nice name. What defined them to the outsiders was their love for Jesus, their following of Jesus the Christ. More than being just a club or a group of do-gooders or people too holy to be involved with anyone else, what defined them was they followed Jesus. We've got a huge amount on at the moment. I'm so thankful for the way we've been as a church family. But I pray that we don't overcomplicate things. Let's take a, a lesson from the church at Antioch and ask the, ask the Lord to work in us in a similar way that he did in them so many years ago. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the chance to look back and see this uh, church plant in Antioch and to see the wonderful things you did there. And James has already reminded us this morning that you're the same God who does the same things today, tomorrow, forever. We have confidence because of that. Please work within us. Where there are areas where we need to change, help us do it. Because we long to be more faithful to you and therefore more of a blessing to the world around us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.